In Canada, a person goes missing every seven minutes. Of the 71,000 people reported missing each year, about 26,000 of them are adults. The good news is that most of the adults reported missing will be found within a week. About 88% of them will return or be located within that time frame. But what about those that just aren't found? The mothers and fathers, sons and daughters who disappear without a trace. These are the cases that we really need your help to solve. I'm Ellen White, and you're listening to Whereabouts Unknown. Today's episode is called Lost Souls, The Disappearance of Don Carice. At this point, we want to advise our listeners that this episode includes mention of missing Indigenous women, as well as references to sexual content or possible sexual exploitation. Eva Dawn Carice is one of six people who went missing from the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital in North Bay, Ontario. It seems that many, many people went missing from the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital through the years, but most by far were returned pretty quickly. But Don Carice, Philippe Guerin, Norman Welsh, Glenn Wesley, Terry Zubko, and Russell Hofford, their stories differ from the others in that they have just never been found. Now let's talk a bit about the community in which the hospital existed. North Bay is a lovely city with a beautiful waterfront and friendly people in Northern Ontario, Canada. Highway 11 is a major highway that runs through this community of just over 50,000 people. On Highway 11 northbound, just as you leave that city, heading for places like New Liskert or Timmins, there existed for decades a facility called the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital. The hospital was huge, housing as many as 1,100 residents at a time in its day. It was surrounded by lovely expanses of lawn and trees and backed onto a forest. It was closed in 2011 when the newly formed Northeast Mental Health Center and the North Bay District Hospital merged in a new location on Highway 17 West in North Bay. The old North Bay Psychiatric Hospital was demolished in 2013. If walls could talk, as they say, I can only imagine the stories that they would have to tell about the facility and its occupants. This hospital housed many, many good people with mental health issues, some moderate, some so severe that they had brought that patient in conflict with the law. These more severe cases, the forensic patients as they were called, were housed in a psychiatric facility to keep them and the communities that they lived in safe. I have no doubt that the staff at the psychiatric hospital had their hands full caring for patients who suffered varying degrees of mental health issues, sometimes coupled with severe physical issues. And with each nurse expected to do laundry, care for, feed, wash, administer medication to, and of course, carefully watch six or seven patients per nurse, that burden must have seemed a heavy one. Now, Don Carissa's story actually begins on Christmas Eve 1990, when this vibrant, healthy young mother of three was cooking a special holiday meal for her family. Standing at her kitchen sink, Dawn collapses. She is immediately brought to the hospital where it's discovered that she suffered a heart attack. And while Dawn would recover from the heart attack, she would not recover from the brain injury that occurred as a result of it, when a blood clot traveled to her brain and caused severe damage there. 
In just a moment, Dawn went from being a happy and energetic young mother who aspired to be a welder to a person that was almost unrecognizable to even those closest to her. Dawn would never again be able to care for herself. Especially impacted was her short-term memory, so she would not be able to retain really much, if any, new information. As her children grew, she was perpetually stuck in a time loop. Time stopped for Dawn Carries on December 24th, 1990. After her heart attack, Dawn was no longer able to care for her children or herself. While her husband tried to keep her at home for a while after she became ill, the stress and strain of caring around the clock for Dawn, in addition to their three young children, led him to seek out other options for her care. The family consulted with Dawn's doctors and were presented with hope that the constant care she would receive at the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital might help her to become better and possibly rejoin her family one day. There is not a single bit of criticism in our story today for this family who is presented with no other option or hope for Dawn than to admit her to this hospital. Dawn became housed on Ward 2A, the locked female ward of this hospital. And from her very first day, she was entirely clear with her message to every single caregiver and visitor that given the chance she would run from this hospital in an attempt to return home to the young children who in her mind never aged and who needed the care and love she felt only she could give them. And for this reason, and out of general concern for her safety and security, Dawn was to be kept under lock and key. Her family had to be relieved that Dawn was finally getting around-the-clock professional care in such a secure environment. Dawn would remain a resident of this ward and this hospital for just over 10 years. In her final year there, her husband would pass away, and the three children who were virtually all she thought about would be left in the care of other family members. And while her family had hoped and prayed that Dawn would one day be discharged and return to them, Dawn's departure from the hospital would follow a drastically different path. In the 10 years she was being kept under lock and key, Dawn would escape, or elope as it's called in hospital terms, at least nine times before she finally disappeared on August 9th, 2001. Dawn has not been seen since. Dawn Carice, aged 43 at that time, five foot six, about 150 pounds, was possibly wearing a pink summer dress and sandals on that warm August day when she went missing for that last time. And we say possibly wearing because even though she had escaped nine times previously, even though she had actually stolen a staff member's keys twice, even though every single day she reminded the staff and other residents that her intention was to get away and return to her children, no one really knows exactly when Dawn went missing or what she was wearing at the time. The staff made this assumption based on which of her regularly worn clothing was missing, they thought. But then Dawn's duffel bag and her native status card were missing too, and she would not have had access to either of those things. Her status card, for example, was kept in a securely locked room that staff referred to as the vault. While walls can't talk, fortunately people can, and we have had dozens of people reach out to us who currently or previously had worked at this facility, had visited there, or who knew Dawn. Dawn's now-grown children who over the past 19 years have never had any explanation as to what happened to their mother are now finally getting some answers to the questions that have plagued them through these people, especially those who had first-hand knowledge of what happened that day. So let me take you sideways for just a second at this point in the podcast to talk about the difference between a voluntary 
an involuntary admission to a psychiatric facility because the distinction is important in Dawn's case. When Dawn was first admitted to the facility, she was an involuntary patient, there at the request of her doctor and family, and judged by the psychiatrist at the facility to be unable to decide on her own whether to stay or go. So in effect, she was committed to the facility. An involuntary patient cannot choose to discharge themselves from the facility or just walk away. Sometime during her 10-year stay, Dawn, who was again kept under lock and key, who was forbidden to leave the hospital without a caregiver by her side, who was completely unable to care for herself and had no signs of improvement, had her status changed at the hospital's request to voluntary. While we were told that Dawn had some internal legal advice, her family feels confident based on everything that they know that she would have been unable to understand what she was signing or agreeing to. And if you're wondering why the hospital would bother to make this status change, uh, we can only speculate, but it could have been solely for everyone's convenience. An involuntary order of committal results in a certificate, and this certificate has a shelf life, and it expires. Each time it expires, a process needs to be activated to commit that person all over again. It can be far simpler if the patient just agrees to stay. So Dawn, with her very limited capacity, was asked to agree to stay, and she did signing whatever documents the hospital asked her to. I'm spending a bit of time on this distinction because in Dawn's case, what looks like a very simple paper shuffle had some potentially disastrous consequences. So Dawn Carice went missing from the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital on August 9th, 2001. Let's look at the initial police report in regard to Dawn's disappearance. The police were alerted on August 10th, 2001, that this very vulnerable, fragile patient went missing sometime the day before. The report says that police were advised that Dawn was first noticed to be missing at about 5 p.m. the previous day when she didn't turn up in the common room for dinner. A nurse working on Ward 2A that day told police that they believed that Dawn had passed them in the hallway just minutes before 5 p.m. when they were helping a patient who wasn't able to walk to use the washroom. So according to the information given to police by that staff member on August 10th, Dawn is literally there one moment and gone the next, out somehow perhaps through a locked ward door or perhaps a barred window. While information has been brought to our attention that challenges this information that was initially provided to police, even if you choose to believe this first version, Dawn was missing at least 16 hours overnight before the police were brought in. So this is where the important distinction between voluntary and involuntary that we talked about earlier comes in. As you'll recall, the hospital had made Dawn a voluntary patient, but she had all of the restrictions of an involuntary one. And because on paper, at least, she showed as voluntary, the hospital really couldn't call the police because a voluntary patient can technically leave any time they want. The hospital waited until the next morning when the institution psychiatrist came in and signed a Form 3, which is a certificate of involuntary admission, and then a Form 9, which is a warrant of apprehension for a person with a mental disorder. These forms made the absent Dawn an involuntary patient once again and finally gave the police the powers to start to investigate and hopefully to find her. But in the 19 years since her disappearance, Dawn just hasn't been found. So let's look at what we believe happened to Dawn on that day. Now, you'll remember the story from the hospital employee on Ward 2A that day who told police that Dawn was there and then she wasn't. 
Well, some hospital employees have come forward to challenge that story and tell us what they feel really happened. We've got to say that we found these people to be very credible in their conversations with us. They were very familiar with Dawn, had been responsible for her care at times, knew her behavior and habits, and seemed genuinely moved by care and concern for Dawn and her family. Here is their version of events. This is what they say happened that day. Dawn Carice, a resident of Locked Ward 2A, had been on the ward for over 10 years, really just going through the same routine every single day. Driven by boredom, no doubt, and her short-term memory issues, she presented a very vocal and noticeable presence on the ward. She's said to have paced the hall constantly, asking every staff who passed if it was time for her next smoke break, where she might be taken to the common room to have her cigarette. This smoke break presented one of her very few options for what might be considered recreation, and Dawn wanted to make sure that not a single one was missed. Staff on the ward that day had their hands full with a number of patients, all with mental health issues and many with physical issues as well. Whether Dawn requested it or whether a staff member thought it might be a good idea, we are told this, that a decision was made to allow Dawn to go to what was called the craft room, a room where patients could engage in making crafts and learning to use basic equipment like a sewing machine. The craft room at that time was housed in Pavilion 3, a good distance from Ward 2A, and the accounts say that Dawn was escorted to the craft room through a series of internal pathways after promising not to try to run away and was left there. So here is the issue with the craft room. The craft room was really not suited to patients who were a high flight risk, as Dawn was, and we were told that the craft room attendant had voiced concerns previously about not being able to watch these high-risk patients left in their care. The craft room attendant needed to help several patients at once with complex tasks like using a sewing machine. And while doing this, their focus would necessarily have been on the machine and on that specific patient. With the number of patients milling about, it was just about impossible to track what they were all doing. And here is what we see as the fatal flaw with that craft room. It led to an exterior door that we are told was kept habitually unlocked from the time that night security left in the morning until they came back later each day. What we heard from staff members who worked at the facility at the time of Dawn's disappearance was that that door, which led to the grounds of the hospital and in Dawn's mind, her children, was kept unlocked. The information that we have been given indicates that Dawn Carice, who had run away at least nine times previously, was brought to the craft room on that day, left there in a room with little supervision and a distracted and busy attendant with an unlocked door to the outside. Maybe Dawn saw someone coming in through the door or just tried the door herself, and she may have been completely surprised to find herself standing outside on the lovely grounds on a beautiful summer day. And she likely ran for the highway to hitchhike home to her children, as she tried to so many times before. Despite the confusion or the varying accounts, this much is clear. Dawn is gone. And depending on which version you choose to believe, she was missing for either 16 or 20 hours before the police were notified. The children she loved more than anything else have not heard from her or seen her in more than 19 years. Here are the theories that our team has considered in regard to what happened to Dawn on or after August 9th, 2001. 
The first is that when Dawn leaves the building, she runs into the forest that surrounds it, perhaps to hide. She may have become lost there, wandering deeper and deeper into the bush until she just couldn't find her way out. We think that this scenario is extremely unlikely, given that Dawn had not run into the bush on any previous escape attempts. She seemed to associate the road and cars with a way to get to her children. And on the day that Dawn went missing, she may have been wearing sandals, which would not have allowed her to walk far into the dense bush at all. The second theory that we considered is that when Dawn leaves the building, she makes it as far as the highway and is picked up by someone who takes her on one leg of the journey. Then someone else takes her on another, then someone else still takes her on another leg until she ends up at a destination far away from where she ever intended to be. Given that Dawn had a minimum of 16 hours and possibly as much as 20 hours on the run uh, before the police were called, she would have had a considerable head start. In whatever location she ended up, she would not have been able to care for herself in a normal way. And if this has happened, she would likely have ended up in a homeless community, living on the street somewhere, or in a hospital or another psychiatric facility. Given that Dawn may have reached another province or possibly even the U.S. if she was hidden in a vehicle, she could really have ended up anywhere. Through the years, hospitals did not always exchange information with each other, and if Dawn has presented for social service benefits or required medical care in the past 19 years, it is possible that her family or police may not have been notified. But given that Dawn talked constantly about her children, knew her name, and knew the town she was from, we think that she would likely have shared this information with anyone she met and insisted that she be brought to her children. The next theory relates to one of those forensic patients that we mentioned earlier. Evidence has surfaced that indicates that Dawn may have formed a friendship with one of them, likely meeting him at one of the dances that were held for patients of the hospital in an area there called the Hub. This patient had given Dawn a gift and she was heard to refer to him as her prince. Had this patient already been discharged and did Dawn go to meet him when she ran away? Having explored this theory in depth, we think it unlikely that this is what happened. The forensic patient in question, it seems, may have been transferred to one of the newer forensic facilities. Also, Dawn was the only person that disappeared on that day in an escape that does not seem to have been a planned attempt, more just an incident of opportunity when she found that unlocked door. The next theory is one that was developed out of some very sad information that we received from some current and former hospital employees. These employees relate that on several occasions, female patients other than Dawn had left the facility only to be picked up by men driving on Highway 11, that highway the hospital was situated on. On some occasions, these men were said to have engaged in sexual relations with the women who may or may not have been able enough to give consent, and then discarded them on the side of the highway. Did Dawn meet with foul play at the hands of someone who picked her up while hitchhiking that day? Were sexual advances made that Dawn tried to fight off, possibly resulting in her being injured or killed? When we look at the number of predators who travel the Highway of Tears in British Columbia, preying on hitchhikers, we can't rule out this terrible possibility. As a result of her escape, Dawn may have found herself in exactly the wrong place at the wrong time, and as a slight woman who would likely have told anyone picking her up that she was on the run, 
it would have been clear to a predator that no one would have known where she was. Since we first announced our coverage of Don Carice's disappearance, almost a quarter of a million people have viewed our posts about her and hundreds have commented and messaged us. Many have reported potential sightings of Dawn in areas right across the country and into the U.S. And our team, along with the North Bay Police Service and police services in other cities, have followed up on each sighting. And to date, to our knowledge, they have all been ruled out. We want to thank every single person who reached out with tips and information and with prayers and messages of hope for Dawn's children and now grandchildren. The lovely Dawn, who aspired to be a welder when her kids were finally in school, never got the chance to explore her dreams. Her life was interrupted by a catastrophic health incident that is really no one's fault, but it was interrupted once again and possibly even taken by a series of events that could never have been set in motion had someone not looked away on that day. It's a sad truth that no evil intent is really necessary in order for bad things to happen. A moment of distraction in traffic can result in a fatal accident. A moment of distraction in a kitchen can result in a fatal fire. And a moment of distraction by staff in a secure psychiatric facility, if that is what happened on that day, may have resulted in a helpless, lovely, funny, and fragile woman being propelled into a situation with a truly terrible ending. Dawn Carice would now be 62 years old. She is known to be a heavy smoker. She often repeated sentences and would talk constantly about her children. If you have seen her, or if you know anything about her whereabouts or what happened to Dawn, please send us a private message at Whereabouts Unknown on Facebook, call Crime Stoppers, or the North Bay Police Service. Here is our interview with Dawn's daughter, Sandra. And today I'm joined by Dawn Carice's daughter, Sandra. Sandra, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm happy to do anything that might bring my mother home. Now, Sandra, your mom became ill when you were quite young and, and a decision was made to have her stay at the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital to get some help. Did you get to see her very often while she was a patient there? Um, she would come home for a visit from time to time with a nurse from the hospital. Um, I remember the nurses being very kind and friendly. Did your mom seem content to stay at the hospital? My mother loved us a lot, and being home with us was where she really wanted to be. We knew, and the staff knew, that she would run away from the hospital if she ever was given the opportunity, and she ran away eight or nine times before she finally disappeared. Every time she ran away, it was to come and find us, my brother, my sister, and I. She just never stopped trying. Sandra, what would you like to say to our listeners today? First of all, I would like to thank the well over 100,000 people who saw the podcast post about my mom. We really appreciate the prayers that you sent us and all of the hope that you have for her successful return. We also want to thank the hundreds of people who sent in comments and tips and shared her picture right across Canada. We are also grateful and so touched that you care. My mother is an amazing lady, funny, kind, and sweet. And we know that someone out there knows what has happened to her or where she is. All we want is to know. If you have any information at all, please send a private confidential message to the 
podcast on their Facebook page or call Crime Stoppers. Thank you. I'm Ellen White, and you've been listening to Whereabouts Unknown. Please join us for the next episode in the Lost Souls series about the North Bay Psychiatric Hospital coming to your favorite podcast platform in late December 2020.